Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of one of our 2020 Elul study classes. I want to focus on celebration. What I mean by that is one of my go-to sayings over the past uh, year or so has been talking about how much I hate tolerance. Tolerance is really good when we talk about lactose, when we talk about nuts, when we talk about the weather, not when we talk about people. And I think one of the things that um, I love about Judaism are, for example, our, our life cycle events, where we are constantly told to celebrate people. And I think... Like our reaction to a new baby is never, okay, cool, we're gonna tolerate this baby. It's always like, amazing, we're gonna have a kiddush or a party. The same with the bar, bar mitzvah, a bi mitzvah, however we wanna call that, the same with uh, weddings and so on. So ultimately the punchline of today, hopefully is gonna be to, how do we approach the same thing when we talk about the LGBTQ and for what we're gonna talk specifically, the transgender community as a whole, and obviously, how, what does that have to do, we'll see, with the high holidays. So I'm going to put right now in the chat box, I'm going to put a link that I think, yeah, that everyone can see. So this is a link to my Safari page. So um, there's many different source sheets that I will be pulling. I will be sharing my screen, so everyone will be able to see it on my screen as well, right? I can share my screen. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, but if you want to, like, have a look on it now or later... Um, I will also try every source sheet I open up. I will try to put an individual link to that sheet in the chat as well. So if you want to follow along that way, you can do that as well. Now, before I jump in, I want to read a small part of my book, Becoming You. I don't know if any of you have read it other than Rabbi Schatz. If you did, amazing. If you didn't, you can get it online. And literally every way, a forum, hardcover, Kindle, audiobook, it's all available. Um... But this is the part, so for those who have read my book, I'm, I, I feel like a lot of people, the biggest critic that I keep getting is that people felt like it kind of ends in a cliffhanger. So that isn't very intentional. Um, I always tell people you can't complain when the last line of the book is literally to be continued because I am writing a second book and hopefully more than that. But the book as it is ends in 2012. It ends with my realization of the outside world, the realization that other trans people exist and, and we'll get to that in a minute. And then I do jump ahead, and I had to fight with my editor to put that in, to put in an apologue, which is mostly me coming out to my dad three years later in 2015. So I want to read a small part of that conversation. So this is towards the end of the conversation. After my dad, who didn't know that trans people exist, neither did I until I was 20, Um, And we had this long conversation with him. I don't want to spoil too much of the book. And we get to this point where I can see in his eyes that it clicked. I I feel like he he understands at least the basics of what I was trying to tell him. I want to read this one page. Silence. Fine, I thought. Tati doesn't believe that it's possible. He's going to say that being transgender isn't possible that trans people don't exist and will brush us off. After all, I have heard far less religious people say such things. I couldn't expect Tati to be any different. 
This time, however, Tati surprised me. Just in case someone is not aware, Tati is how we would call it. It's a kind of daddy in Yiddish. Uh, okay, yes, he said. It is possible that there are people in the world whose souls and bodies are different, and it can be real. But you need a tzaddik, a righteous person who has a Holy Spirit within him, to know for sure. He seemed very sure of his assertion. Well, I've seen two therapists and a doctor who all agree with me, I told them. They're not tzaddiks, but they know it's true. But do you think that is okay with Judaism? He responded. Now, again, no one to spoil too much. We'll let you all read a book to hear everything and what I, what I responded to him at the time. But to him, that was his ultimate kind of like comeback. And there was like two parts. There's this, when he said there is, you need to have a holy person and only they can know like the source of your neshama, of your soul. Was it, there was literally one person in the entire world at the time who was a 90-year-old radical Hasidic Rebbe who my dad would have trusted and not that he would have ever said anything like that. Now he isn't even alive anymore. Um, but it was more. For me, and, and maybe we'll talk a bit about that later, for me that's what was one of the early realizations that in many religious communities, and at least for my dad, his issue with LGBTQ people is not religion. Um, we'll get to these source sheets in a minute, and you will see like uh, all of these. And, and one of the things that it becomes very obvious that Judaism and Jews throughout history have always recognized that gender isn't black and white. At least that we can go into the exact details of what, and I will. You don't have to trust me. We'll see in the Mishnah. We'll see the Talmud. We'll see all these texts. I'm not making it up. But what struck me, but it also with my dad as well, when I showed him a text, I will share that text later, a Hasidic text that talks about that. But also later, the I released the first, I did have to do the research on it, and the first source sheet that you will see in a minute, I released in 2016, and I published it online on Safarium. And up to that point, it was the most hate I got from my former community. Not for coming out, not for being public about it, but for publishing a source sheet with primary religious texts. And it made me realize that for so many people, if your concern really is religion, I'm not telling you exactly what to believe, but it should at least give you pause. You should, you read a Mishnah that talks about gender in a way that would put to shame some 21st century gender studies professors. And if this doesn't give you pause for a second and be like, okay, maybe the Judaism that I claim to believe in does have a more nuanced opinion. But the reality is that for far too many people, it doesn't. Like my dad, whose response was just, what, you think that is okay with Judaism? I just showed you some checks. I just told you the, the, the part leading up to that conversation was sharing him checks, showing him stuff. So it became very clear to me that the issue is a lot more that there's some people who live in a certain box and they put all the other people around them in a certain box. And when you do not fit into that box, they start hating you. It's not a religious issue. And listen, I always tell people, and I see there's at least two other rabbis there, and I think every rabbi has that experience. If you want to hear arguments about what's wrong with like traditional stuff or issues that we have with the Torah or with the Talmud, I think we can all give you a long list. But I think when it comes to LGBTQ issues, religion is not a problem. However, the reason why I wanted to start with that text, and you can say that I have daddy issues and I have no issue with that, is because every time 
I do an event and I've done over 500 speeches and sessions over the past three years. And way more than half of them were within Jewish communities. And I'm talking everything from synagogues to temples to Scotland residence weekends, Hillel's, JCC's, and so on. And every single time I am with a group of Jewish people and I'm thinking back to my dad, like this was supposed to be his ultimate comeback. Do you think it's okay with Judaism? And I'm thinking of the fact that I got invited and got asked to do this with a Jewish community, not just during any time, but as a, as a part of leading up to the high holidays, to the high holidays. And so far, none of the rabbis here, none of you have tried to stone me virtually. You all seem to be very okay with me being Jewish and a rabbi and talk about these things. And in many ways, I think that is the greatest comeback. So what I want to say before anything is I am grateful to each and every one of you. If we have right now 30 screens, probably some of you are double, I don't know, more than one person at a screen. But I always say, I like to say that every, every single person that is at a talk is actually 10 people. Because I'm hoping that you will also mention this to other people. So with, I, as far as I'm concerned, I have this opportunity now to talk to 300 people because of all of you. And to say that it's not just okay to be Jewish and queer, Jewish and part of the LGBTQ community, but that it's something that is worthy of celebration. And for that, you're all amazing, and thanks for being here. Now let's jump in. To give a bit of a background of who I am, instead of me talking a lot more, I want to show a video. Um, this video comes from a website called Alma. It's an online magazine that is um, mostly geared, Alma means a young girl in Hebrew, and it's mostly geared towards young American Jews, mostly young, young Jewish women, American Jewish women. But this is a video that I did with them after my book came out. I want to share that video. Hopefully that will cover a bit of the basics of who I am, what I want, what I'm doing. And then we'll dive into a bit more in the text. Um, like Rabbi Schatz mentioned, if you have any questions, um, send it directly to her and we'll hopefully get to that at the end. However, if I do say something that you do not understand, meaning not a question, but rather a clarification. I mention a term, I try to explain everything and not to assume anything, but I sometimes forget myself. So if I say anything you don't understand, do ask at any time and I will try to explain it. Can you all see my screen now? Hi, my name is Abby Sign. I grew up in Williamsburg in Brooklyn, New York. I was raised as my parents' first son. I'm, I'm currently an author and an activist, and I live in Manhattan. Oh, so people might recognize me, just saying. I hope they do. Huh? I hope they do. Why? I don't know. It's exciting. I grew up being told that I was a boy. Um, ironically, I say I never struggled with my gender identity because I always knew that I wasn't and it was so clear to me since I was three years old and as I write in the book, um, when I was four, I took quite a few actions and trying to talk to people about it, but in the Hasidic community, as part of being so sheltered, no one talks about it. I didn't even know the term transgender until I was 20. I didn't know there were other people who felt like me out there and they weren't even homophobic. It's kind of ironic. I, I sometimes wish that my teachers or my parents growing up would have been homophobic. 
transphobic or transphobic openly because it would have meant that I knew about it, that I would have known that they are trans people, that I would have known that they are gay people, um, but I didn't know anything about it. Then when I was around 12, I had a member very consciously telling myself that, listen, I don't know what's going on here, but the same people that are telling me that I am a boy, which I know for a fact, I never doubted that for a second, I know that is wrong, are the same people that are telling me everything about God, about Judaism, how to live life, how to live a Hasidic life, that is the only true way, and so on. But what makes, if they can be wrong about something so existential about my gender identity, about who I am, why would I trust them for anything else? And that kind of started leading me down a path of questioning more and more. <laughs> Got it? Do you see yeah, where this is going? <laughs> but also, He's already a nice one, yeah. open-minded one. <laughs> yes, yeah. but that's not what he meant. <laughs> Um, I've gotten to a point where my Judaism is very much I pick and choose, cherry pick, and I'm proud of it. The beauty of American Judaism, of New York Judaism, is my ability to do that, and ability for everyone to, whatever, whichever part you feel speaks to you, you can go and do, and not do the other parts, because I'm not stupid. Judaism has a lot of outdated stuff, like every other culture. Um, I showed my dad a quote from a Hasidic rabbi from the, from the 18th century, he was one of our ancestors, that literally says that for the reasons of reincarnation, sometimes uh, the soul of a female ends up in the body of a male. And to some extent that pushed my dad a bit in a corner, and he admitted as far as going as, yes, it's possible. He was like, yes, it's possible for someone to be trans. But then he's like, you need to have a holy person who has a Holy Spirit, which is a Hasidic version of knows what God wants, and he has to be able to tell you that you're trans, otherwise you can't know. And then his final reaction was, I'm not going to be able to talk to you ever again. I, if I know the combination like to my parents, am I breaking in? No. And I'm probably I'm not actually going to go in. I want to see if they change the combination lock or not. <laughs> Let's see. See if I still remember it. I do. <laughs> if I can imagine a wormhole right now that is taking me to the same place 15 years ago, or like 20 years ago, I would walk up to my small self that is probably playing somewhere here in the park, and I would tell my old self, you're not alone. There are the people like you. You're not crazy. There's a whole world out there that will unconditionally accept you and love you. Um, and you do have a future, even if you think you don't. I hope this gives a framework a bit of where I come from, where I'm going. Now what I wanted to, oh my God, there's a cat. There's a kitty. <laughs> Sorry, moving on. Um, <laughs> I want to dive into a bit to some of these texts that I've mentioned. Now, I assume that it's okay. I usually try not to go too heavy on text unless I assume that people are prepared for that. I gather that if we're doing this leading up to the high holidays, I'm allowed to share some text. Um, what I always try to pride myself with is that I want to make sure that even someone who has never read a Jewish text before 
still really understands what's going on and can still uh, understand everything. And then even someone who knows everything there is to know about Jewish everything, which I don't think that exists, but hypothetically should still find it interesting. Um, so I will, um, as I mentioned before, I will keep sharing the screens on, um, sh like share the screens. I will also try to put a link to the specific source sheets that I'm using um, as we go along. Okay, now Rabbi Schatz, you told me if that's it. you tell me if this is a terrible idea. I would love to maybe have people read some of the text. Great. Or you think I should just go through all of them? Whatever. No, I think if people if people can and want to, then they totally I think should. That would be great. So yeah. yeah. So um, whenever someone reads something, um, feel free to read the Hebrew, the English, the both. Not all of the text, but looks like Hebrew. Some of them look like Hebrew, but they're actually Aramaic. But um, you can choose what you want to read. Um, should we do volunteers, popcorn? What do you? What, what, what would be, what would work? Yeah, sure. I I can't see everybody, but um, does someone want to read the first text? If you raise your hand, I'll try to call on you. Oh, Jay, great. And God created man in His own image. In the image God created He him. Male and female created He them. Now, I have to do the translation of this verse by myself because pretty much every translation, specifically, forget about like the, the, the King James Version, they took the Torah and, and, and uh, whatever. Um, I don't even want to talk about what they did with it. Uh, but even other translations, like even JPS and even on Safari alone, I couldn't find a literal translation. And the reason why I think a literal translation is important is in order to understand something. And to me... The reason why the creation story, which we're going to dive into for a bit, is so interesting is, and if I may share something personal of my relationship with the Torah, with the Bible, and I hope no one is going to stone me for that, but um, I'm very used, like growing up, there was always like for heresy, the, the punishment was like, when, when the Messiah is going to come, you're going to be stoned if you say heresy. So I'm just like still sometimes a bit stuck in that. But um, uh I, I went from believing growing up that every single word, not just in the Torah, not just in the Tanakh, but in the Talmud and every story, everything happened exactly the way it happened. I went from that to start to study, read certain books that I wasn't supposed to, which is really easy if you grow up Hasidic because you're not supposed to read almost anything that is outside of the Hasidic uh, canon. Um, and I got to a point where I was like, hey, this is all written by people. It's all BS. There's no point to it. To coming to a point of like, this is all written by people, but my people throughout thousands, hundreds and thousands of years, and that only makes it more beautiful. So in whichever way you want to approach these texts, whatever these are stuff that you see that Jews for thousands of years have been dealing with, which is a reality. No, I don't think anyone disagrees with that part. Whatever you believe, they are the words of God, divinely inspired, however you want to look on that. One thing that becomes very clear from the beginning is that gender is not clear. And I think that is something that we're going to see in the next few minutes that becomes very clear. Oh, I'm not confusing anyone. But, and I think there's a lot of debates, and we'll see in a minute, even between the rabbis and the Talmud, there's already debates of how to interpret it and who the first person was when it comes to gender. The only thing that is clear is that if gender is not black and white and there is more to it. So just looking on this verse alone. Now, I don't know about any of you, but I know for me, um, and I struggle with that a lot. When I started college, English was my fourth language. 
And I was struggling sometimes with grammar. And one of the things that I learned really early on, and one of my English professors told me that, is you always need consistency. Like, don't write one verse where you jump between singular and plural. So in other words, if this verse would be graded by an English professor today, it would get an F. And God created, okay, translated here to men, but that is also disputed if Adam means actually men as a whole, or men as in the gender, or humanity, or even according to many interpretations, it just refers to Adam as a name of a person. But however you want to interpret that, that was created in his own image. And while I usually don't like to refer to God in masculine terms, and the whole conversation about uh, masculinity for God, it's, 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 we're not going to go into that. I have a whole story sheet on there if someone wants to read more about that. Um, it's definitely not intended to be look on God in the way we think about men in the modern sense, that's for sure, but just to keep it a literal translation. And the image of God created he him. So we're talking about a single person who is here treated as a masculine person. Literally the second after that. Male and female created he them. Are we talking about one person? Are we talking about two people? Now, if we are talking about humanity, it might make a bit more sense, but why is it flipping between singular and plural when talking about humanity? Which in one single verse? Okay. We can stay with questions. We're Jews. We don't need to answer right away. <laughs> Does someone want to read the next one? Deb, you want to read so the next Also, one? before, let me give a bit of context for those uh, who might know. Uh, I assume some of you have read the story of Genesis. But Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are... For someone who likes biblical, like textual criticism, they're a gold mine. In general, there's a lot of mixing going on. They are two um, separate creation stories that are kind of contradicting each other. And already in the Talmud, people have picked up on it. So just so you know, so the, the first verse is from the Genesis 1 story, which has part of the more uh, known and like classic creation story of um, the six-day creation. However, the other classical known creation story that we're going to see in a minute of like the woman coming from the men, that is actually only in Genesis 2, not in Rishadah, not in Genesis 2. So does someone want to read that one? Deb, you want to read? Sure. Bayomer Adonai Elohim lo tov heyot ha'adam levado, este lo ezer kenegdo. Bayapel Adonai Elohim tardema al ha'adam bayishan. And Hashem God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helpmate, a helpmate for him. And Hashem God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh instead thereof. And the rib Hashem God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her unto the man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now, the they shall be one flesh part will make a bit more sense later, and, and we'll see why I, I, I highlighted it. But the part where if it's not good that a man should be alone, 
just for starters already suggests that the original person was just one person, as opposed to what we had in the second part of the previous text, which was that it was both. So there's already this like tension here. And then there's this story that is usually translated that God took one of the ribs. We'll see in a second that is far from clear, but that is the uh, classical translation, mostly I think popularized ironically by Christianity rather than by Judaism, used for a long time to justify sexism. We're not, it's a whole other conversation. But then there's that story and there's like a separate person. Um, for context, even just a bit more, in Genesis 2, in Rashid Bet, between the creation of, of, of Adam and the creation of Chava, the creation of Eve, there's actually a whole other story. Like there's things that are happening. According to Madrash, he was naming all the animals. There's also Adam starts praying for rain and only rain. In, in, in Genesis chapter 1, the rain and the plants happen before Adam is even created. In Genesis 2, first Adam is created, then there comes the rain and the grass, and only after that, the whole story with Eve, with Chava. We're going to move on. We're not going to focus on that too much. Now, this Midrash is starting to deal with that tension. Who was that first person? Mostly focusing, actually focusing on both. The, the kind of tension that we have in the first verse and the tension that we have in the second part. Does someone want to read this? And careful, if someone wants to read the Hebrew, please go for it. But it's not an easy Hebrew. It's a mix of Aramaic. <laughs> Oh, Bonnie, yeah, go ahead. Just unmute. There you go. And God said, let us make Adam in our image, in our shape. Uh, Rabbi Yirmiyah ben Elazar said, when Hashem created Adam HaRishon, he was created as both genders. Thus is it written, male and female did he create them. Rav Shmuel Bar Nachman said, when Hashem created Adam HaRishon, he created him with two faces, one on each side. And when he made Chava, he split him along the middle, forming two backs. They challenged him, but it is written, and he took one of his ribs. He said to them, Mitzalasav, doesn't mean rib, it means one of his sides, similar to that which is said, and to the tsela of the Mishkan, which is translated the side of the Mishkan. So there's a few things that I love about this Midrash. Let me just read this uh, uh, kind of like quick commentary. The Midrash, classical Jewish exegesis, adds that the first human being formed in God's likeness was an androgynous, an intersex person. Hence, our tradition teaches us that all bodies and genders are created in God's image, whatever whether we identify as man, woman, intersex, or something else, which becomes obvious. But one of the other, one of, there's two main things that I love about this Midrash, because it takes two classical stories and throws them out of the window, but in a way that makes sense, looking on the text as it is. So first of all, the next time anyone tries to say, hey, God created Adam and Eve, not whatever, the whole thing that God created Adam and Eve doesn't make any sense because if you want to go back to creation, you have to be intersex. Everything else is, is not, not how it was created. It obviously becomes very clear that you can't use the creation story to change reality. But another part that becomes so interesting is the whole story of the woman coming from the rib. For people who study biblical Hebrew, one of the ways, Biblical Hebrew is by far not the same as modern Hebrew. 
very similar, but they are a lot of they are a lot of differences. And one of the ways, one of the oldest ways, of deciphering biblical Hebrew is looking on context. Meaning, you see a word, and you were like, okay, what does this word mean? So you look on other places where that word is also mentioned. Now, it's true that in modern Hebrew, I think Tela means a rip. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. But when you look on biblical Hebrew, where else in the Torah is that word mentioned? And one of them is with the Mishkan. Last time I checked, tents don't have ribs. I might be mistaken, but that was my understanding. And it becomes very clear that the word in that context means side, not ribs. So when you look at it that way, what this story is actually saying wasn't that first there was a man and then a woman was created out of the man, but rather first there was one person that was both, which also was, we'll discuss that in a minute, by being both it also means being none. Get to that in a second. And then that person was just split equally in the middle which I think is a very important difference of looking on that story. Specifically given, I don't think that text should determine reality. It's a whole other conversation, maybe one day. But it becomes, the reality is that this text was used for generations to justify a lot of social norms. And when you look at it from the ways of the rabbinic lens, you start realizing that it's not as simple. And you can look at it in a totally different perspective. Now, to think about what does that really mean if the first person was both genders? I, when if we do this in person, it's a lot easier. It's a bit harder to do it on Zoom. But usually I would start asking people, when, and, and think about it. When you see a person and you subconsciously, your brain decides for you within a split second, if that person is male and female most of the time, unless if you work on yourself, which we sure, or we hope we all should do. But what are the things that you pick up? In obvious ways, it's you pick up the differences, whatever they are, breasts, facial features, facial hair, clothing, all of these are only determined in opposites to what the other gender wears. The second... There is no differences. It's not really both genders, but rather genderless. Gender doesn't exist anymore, which is also a very important thing to keep in mind. Okay, now I want a favor from all of you. Open up your chat box, and in a minute, I wanna, I'm going to ask you to write a number. I want you to tell me how many genders you think traditional Judaism, not how many genders you believe they are, but how many genders you think traditional Judaism, will let you define traditional Judaism, recognizes. Don't give me any explanations, nothing, just a number. And usually I, when I ask people questions, I'm like, there's no right or wrong answer. Unfortunately, this time they are wrong answers. But... Um, I just want to see, put in a number. I, I, if I, I always tell people, if I judge, I will do it silently. Some of you are just chatting me privately. So if, if you want to chat other, everyone. Yeah, or like me privately. You can yeah. do that. <laughs> um, so we got so far only one six, which is Deb. Okay, Deb seems to be very educated. Didn't you read before? You seem great. Okay, I love it already. Amazing. <laughs> But then everyone else so far, we got a lot of twos. Leah saying four or five, amazing. 
Benjamin is also saying six. Okay, Tali also six. Amazing. And then we have more twos and Jay saying four. Okay. Now, I'm sorry to disappoint all of you who said any number below six. You're all dead wrong. Believe me, I take no, I take no joy in saying that because I wish more people would know that. What I mean by that is in the most stringent religious interpretations of rabbinic Judaism, they are at least six different genders. According to most interpretations, these are actually eight. And according to some, even more than that, depending on how you interpret different words. As we all know, if there's one line of Talmud, there has to be ten opinions about what it really means. Now, there are many places throughout rabbinic texts, specifically in the mission of the Talmud, where they talk about it. It's not a one-off. The rabbis were really good at saying some really interesting stories once a, once a time, which I don't think they were even meant to be taken serious. But when it comes to gender, in the Talmud, there's hundreds of times when they talk about genders beyond male and female. When they talk about people's place in society, it's very clear that these are not hypotheticals. But I like specifically this Mishnah. Not as much because of who it's talking about, because exactly who the androgynous and the tumtum that we're going to see in a minute they're talking about, it's disputed. I want us to focus on how they approach gender. Does someone want to read it? Just read no, no, it. Barbara, great. Barbara, yes. You're unmuted. Go ahead. <laughs> we do that all the time. I know. We play this game. We're, now I'm getting better. <laughs> An androgynous, most likely someone who has both male and female reproductive organs. It's similar to men in some ways and to women in other ways. Some ways to both and in some ways to neither. Rabbi Meir says... Androgynous is a gender category of its own because rabbis could not decipher whether she, he, they is a man or a woman. Cover and you're, I, I can't read that word because you're. Oh, the cursor is over it. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Tum is not so as at times she, he, they is fully male and at times she, he, they is fully female. But we can't tell which. But as, as a physician, I have to say that. There aren't that many people that have both male and female. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's not try to make any scientific sense of a Talmudic text. That's usually a bad idea. <laughs> okay. uh, there's actually, there's actually a, and, and I'm not just saying that, there's actually a piece from Maimonides um, in Guide to the Perplex, which when I read it the first time when I was 15, I was so excited and used it to show, I, I showed it to my advisor in yeshiva and almost got kicked out because it's considered heresy, even though Maimonides says it. But he says that when you read um, anything scientific in Talmudic texts, and there's a contradiction between what they are saying and what we know now, and by now he means 900 years ago, to be accurate, then you should always follow science. Because he's not just saying that Talmud was wrong, he's saying that the rabbis merely was, were merely dealing with what they knew. And they were not even trying to say that what they're saying is they're always accurate. Well, unless if you're Orthodox today, then you might disagree with Maimonides, which is almost ironic because a lot of Orthodox people claim Maimonides as the ultimate uh, authority on philosophy. Mm -hmm. But so, so we're not they're saying, I don't want to focus exactly who they're talking about. Um, whatever it's talking about, people who have both reproductive organs, people who have, Tumtum seems to be 
but it's not though it's not exactly true no one knows exactly what androgynous means it comes from the same word that we use today for for gender representation not just for biological sex um it's just, that's why I said most likely a tum-tum definitely refers to someone that is more ambiguous, which is a bit more people. Um, today, they would probably include people with um, uh, any form of chromosomes that are not black and white, which is uh, an even bigger group. But that's not the point. What I, what I want us to look on this is because they are saying on what is the place of people when it comes to gender. Because gender and sex is not the same thing. Sex, usually we used to refer to someone's physical features. And even that is divided into two parts. They are sex characteristics, which is usually something you see at birth. There's something called secondary sex characteristics, which usually are based on hormones developed, like, for example, breasts, facial hair, and so on, which develop based on, on, on hormones in your body, which are usually determined by chromosomes, though not always, and so on. Anyway. Um, but the point being of how they talk about gender in the sense of your place in society. And gender, as when I mentioned before, you see someone and you decide subconsciously their gender, unless you are on a nude beach, you don't see which reproductive organs they have. Meaning, when you decide someone's gender, you decide it on things that are, some of them are what we would call the secondary sex characteristics, which are determined by hormones, such as facial hair, breasts, and so on. And most of it, though, is based on clothes and facial hair. And if they have longer short hair, and if they wear makeup, and so on, which we can all agree is made up in society. It's, uh, I remember that um, I'm, I'm dating this woman now who grew up in a totally secular Jewish community. She's now, she's now in rabbinical school, whatever, but um, point being, she saw, and, and, and maybe it was, um, no, I don't think I will get to show a video of that, but she saw this kind of garment. Actually, let's see if I can find, I can probably find, actually, I can definitely find a picture. So pardon me all for watching me Google myself, but I want to... Um, point out what I'm talking about by showing a picture of that piece. Oh, hold on. Now we all know what we'll see when we Google you. Well, well I also <laughs> we think that Google, I think Google gives different results for different people, depending That's on your previous and your other. Um, but I want to... Hold on, there's one picture that I liked that I think will get that image across the best. So let's see if I find it. Not we use another one. Oh, here, this one. Okay, great. So this specific, whatever you want to call it, suit, coat, rope, um, it's something that is uniquely for only specific people of rabbinic descent and specific families. And there are different specifications depending on your family. I can tell usually which which bigger rabbinic or slash royal family someone belongs to just by the specifications of this specific garment. But I showed it to her for the first time, and she saw a video of my father and my brother-in-law dancing at my sister's wedding. She looks at it, and she's like, how is that not gay? This specific kind of clothes. Okay, so it's a very shiny... Uh, polyester or silk rope with like pieces of velvet. It doesn't use uh, buttons, it uses hooks, which most women will recognize from bras. Um, it comes with checkered pants that actually you can get, I know I, I've seen it at least once at Macy's for women's pants, that exact same t print. Long white tights, well they're socks, but could look like tights, and very shiny stepping shoes. And many other societies, this would be considered either feminine or, oh, and 
let's talk about a tight rope uh, kind of that you wear in the middle on your chest. It would be considered either feminine or gay, or at least. I think in most Western communities, they wouldn't look on this and be like, oh, this is super masculine. <laughs> yeah, it's where I come from. This is peak masculinity. Point being, what we see on something and we decide this is male, this is female, it's made up. It depends on our cultural norms. It depends what we have known. What's interesting about this text that I love so much, though, it reminds me of the my professor when I took intro to gender studies at school, okay? And the professor walks in the first day to class, and she was she knew who she was talking to. I went to Columbia, so, like, one of the, like, most more progressive places on the planet. And... Uh, for specifically when it comes to sexuality, which is again not the same thing as gender, and the easiest way to think about the difference between gender and sexuality, gender is who you are, sexuality is who you want to be, who you want to be with, which are not always related. But so a lot of people when think about sexuality, think about a spectrum. Um, how like you know, there's ultimate like straight, super gay, and there's everything in between, which most people are in some form of spectrum. She was trying to make a point that gender isn't exactly like this. She walks into class and she's like, you all got to realize that there's some people who are male, some people are female, some people are sometimes male, sometimes female, sometimes both, sometimes none. And then there are people who just do not fit on this gender binary altogether. If I was to create one of these memes and put this text in and say, is this a second century or a 21st century? Like, is this a second century or a text or a 21st century intergender studies professor at Columbia University? I'm going to gamble and say that most people are going to think this is a 21st century idea. Yet when you look at it, what to me, and again, we can argue for the next 10 hours exactly what androgynous is, exactly what tumtum is. There's two additional genders that Atama talks about, a Saris and an Islandus, which we're not even going to touch, which are definitely would fall today under the umbrella of transgender, not intersex. That's not a point. What becomes so clear, back to what we said in the beginning, is that it isn't clear. But there's something more beautiful here. When I look at this text, I'm not like, oh, who I am is real because a rabbi said so. 1,800 years ago. I don't think we need text to justify who we are. One of my favorite sayings that Abzalman Schechter, who was the, considered the father, founder of Jewish Renewal, used to say, I don't think it was his, his saying, but I heard it from him, was that um, Judaism is here to serve the Jews, not the other way around. I think I have it. We'll maybe show that text later. Um, where mostly that, like, one of the powers of Judaism was constantly looking on the reality. And to me... This text gives me a lot of pride. Both as a rabbi, meaning the people who have carried the same title have been dealing with this for thousands of years, but simply as a Jewish person. This is something that our people have dealt with for thousands of years, which is, shouldn't be surprising to anyone, because it's reality. Yet, if you look on Twitter or in many other places, you might get the feeling that people are trying to tell you that the whole idea of transgender people is something entirely new. Maybe the way we talk about today is relatively new, but people who are transgender have always been around. And I think that is where this text becomes so powerful and why it becomes so important. We'll get to that in a second. I'm going to skip this one. Um, well, just very briefly, um, you can find it online. Uh, if you look on the bold parts, it's something, it's just a very interesting uh, text. Uh, this is Zohar, a Kabbalistic text, that focuses on uh, thinking of ideal gender and ultimately saying that every person, 
and therefore we learned that every person needs to be male and female at all times. Which is this idea that it, there isn't like an ideal gender, but rather that ideal gender is being both genders, which ultimately also means that ideal gender is being genderless. Um, I just like this commentary from uh, Rabbi Dr. J. Michelson. He says, in this model, the individual mystic soul, and, and again, if you, have any, if you want to read the full text of the Zohar, you can look it up online or in the link that I posted. Uh, the individual mystic soul, gendered feminine, first participates in an act of transgender homoerotic mystical fellowship with those of her fellow mystics. The here is not a mistake. The H-I-R is intentional. In order to once, at once welcome the divine feminine, in some, in some case entering into an erotic union with her, Kabbalah and erotica go together really well for someone who has studied Kabbalah, and immediately switch gender roles to embody that divine feminine for her congress with the male goddess. Ultimately, the message being the ideal person is able to deal with both, male and female, at all times. Now, one, uh, oh, this is actually one of the texts I mentioned before, this is one of, my, one of my favorite texts about him, about religion. I realize that all forms of religions are masked, that the divine wears to communicate with us. Behind all religions, there's a reality, and this reality wears whatever clothes it needs to speak to particular people. Okay, so what's my point? What do I want? Why am I sharing all of this video? I said already that I don't think we need text to justify who we are. Why does this really matter specifically for our conversation? And that's where this text, which is already a Hasidic text, comes in, I think, really helpful to understand us how we can use that to put it into a modern context of how to celebrate people. The Degel Machna Ephraim was one of literal, literally just four grandkids of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov, who is my direct ancestor five times over, um, the founder of Hasidic Judaism, he had only two kids. His son had two kids, and his daughter had two kids. And this is one of his daughter's sons, Degel Machna Ephraim. He was one of the biggest Hasidic leaders at the time. But more importantly, in the context of Hasidic Judaism, he is considered one of the most accurate and trustworthy people to give over teachings from the Baal Shem Tov, because the Baal Shem Tov himself never wrote anything down, so it was mostly coming from his students. Here we're talking about someone that we actually know from historical records, which is so fascinating. Uh, we found a few years ago the tax records from Mezhevich from in the 1950s, sorry, 1750s, not 1950s, and you can see that the Degelmachner founder of lived in the same house as the Balshan. And so really someone, like we're not talking about a later Hasidic text, someone made something up. For us, Hasidic Judaism is concerned, this is a, a legitimate text. In every generation, the scholars of that generation are making up, or you can translate it to, or finishing or filling up, the, the Hebrew word is mashlimin, the Torah because the Torah is being interpreted in every generation according to the needs of that generation. And another part that I haven't translated yet, but this part gets even stricter. He says in Hebrew, someone who doesn't believe in that, sorry, someone who doesn't believe in that, is, in fact, if you are a heretic, kofel, in that, as if you don't believe in the Torah altogether, which is supposed to be a terrible thing. Point being, he's saying something that if I would walk into a Hasidic synagogue today and be like, hey, listen, everyone, 
the Torah, Judaism, is changing in every generation according to the needs of that generation. Or using a bit more modern terms, Judaism serves the reality of what we need, of who we are. Very similar to Reb Zalman's text. It comes to a way where you start realizing that a neo-Hasidic rabbi who was shunned by Hasidic people is more Hasidic than the contemporary Hasidic movement. But it's something that was very present in the Hasidic movement. And understanding that halach is great if it fits into the reality of that generation. And it's almost ironic to think about this, that Hasidic Judaism today is literally the polar opposite of that, where, like, don't change your language, don't even change your clothing, don't change anything, as opposed to, oh, everything in the Torah can change. Now, why does all of that matter? Because when we talk, when we, when we talk about celebration... When we talk about not just tolerating people, but to realize that Judaism has a long tradition of celebrating people, when you start pulling all of these together, you come to a conclusion that Judaism has a long tradition of celebrating humanity, celebrating people for who they are, which in this case also means being not just okay with people's gender identities, but realizing that that is beautiful. And that we can go ahead and create a form of celebrating people that is could seem like a very modern celebration that is at the same time extremely grounded in Judaism. And for that, I want to show another video. And this one is a very personal one. Just make sure to turn the, okay. Now, I can see some of you, the ones that had the video on. So, like, just raise your hand if you had a bar mitzvah. A bar mitzvah specifically. Anyone? Great. And if you had a bat mitzvah? And if you had both? I'm cooler than all of you. Um, <laughs> point being, and we'll, we'll get to explain that a bit more, but I want to show, and don't worry, I'm not going to show the whole 25 minutes. I'm going to skip ahead to different pieces. But this is my own celebration, or what I titled the Celebration of Life in Transition, which was, both for myself, it was very important, but also to show to the world what is possible. On YouTube, it only has 15,000 views, but I've shown these video, videos to over 100,000 people. And I know the power of it, and, and I wasn't able to find a ritual that existed before. And pretty much what you're going to see in this video, uh, we created for the sake of this celebration. Um, but there have been many people who have done it since. And I think it's just an example when, that when we talk about not tolerating LGBT, but celebrating LGBTQ people because of who we are, not in spite of who we are, that can become an extremely Jewish practice. In our tradition, leaving Egypt wasn't an historical event alone. In our tradition, leaving Egypt was a personal existential leaving as well. Whenever we leave a narrow place, a place of constriction, 
painful servitude, a place where we are not authentically who we are, that leave-taking, that transitioning is an exodus. It's a freedom walk. And so at this moment, we have risen, we have stood now, in order to, to be in community with our very dear, dear, dear friend and member and teacher who will make a blessing of transition and walk slowly through this space, this narrow space, to a place of Torah, to a place of reception, and to a place of new name. We turn to face. Bless this morning, one who has come forward to receive a new name in our tradition, to be known the Israel, to be known amongst this community and all communities, as Avigail Chava Bat Menachem Mendel Vechaya Shendel, Avigail Chava. May the merit of all of those who have walked from a narrow place into an expansive place be with you. May, may the signature of the one who is known as Emmet, the one who is known as Truth, be with you as you have now embraced, first to yourself and now in Kahalrav amongst those who love you and know you. Embrace the truth of who you are and the joy of who you are. Avigail, Abby, the one who is joyous, the one who is alive. We bless you in this community. Your name, Avigail Ruth, sorry, Avigail. Amen. Amen. 
Kalam, Asher Bacher Banu in Kalamim, Vinatan Lanu Etorato, Ruhu share this as, a, as an opening example, as, as one of many things that we can do. I'm not saying everyone that this is the only way of practicing that celebration, but it is a good example. Now, I want to share one more, a few more checks specifically. Let's see if I can find it easily. Uh, I don't remember when I created it, but I have specifically relating to the high holidays. Oh, this is not what I meant to pull up, but I didn't realize it's in there. So good. This is a picture of me at my third birthday with my uncle, the was the Bob of a Rebbe, one of the biggest Hasidic Rebbe's after the Holocaust. Um, but yeah, I, I, that's not what I meant. I wanted to, um, so this is, by the way, the text that I mentioned before that I showed to my dad. Um, Hasidic text, the, the bold part alone gives the message. At times, a female would be in a male body. Um, but I want to focus on these few for a second. Now, for someone, I don't know how many people um, are nerds like me and like to study the high holiday prayers and the poems and the poetry and the Putim, which are a lot of fun, um, other than rabbi and cantors. I don't know who, how many other people, but there's actually a lot of beautiful parts. One of, the, one of the strongest messages throughout traditional and as far even, you will find it in even the most non-traditional uh, Rosh Hashanah specifically services, are this concept of the kingdom of God. Sounds very Christian when you translate it into English, but um, this idea of, um, it's one of the three big parts of the Musaf prayer, of the additional prayer on Rosh Hashanah day, which is the Malchiyot, there is, uh, in many communities, the opening um, to the Shachrit prayer after, like, Nishmat, which during on, on, during the year, you start with Shochinat. On the high holidays, you start with HaMelech Yosheva Kisei Ramanit, which is God is sitting on the throne. There's a lot of that messages of the throne of God, God's kingdom, and so on. Now, there's this interesting teaching that I find really ties in to where we get to the point where being who we are in terms of everything, but for what we are talking in terms of LGBTQ people, it's not just okay, 
but almost becomes an obligation. And if we want to talk about the high holidays, about Rosh Hashanah, it's this day where we are sanctifying the name, wherever that's the name of the divine, or, or bringing, bringing, making the world a better place. In Judaism, we'll see that that, supporting people for who they are, celebrating people for who they are, ends up being a part of that. So does someone want to read this one? Exit the 1716. He said, it means hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war with Amalek. Throughout the ages. Okay. So conductive translation, this one I just got from Safaria, hence the very Christian Lord. Okay. Um, but this is this verse. Now, the next part, you can read it if you want the commentary from Rashi on that verse. Do you want to do that? Or should we get some? The English? Because English the hand is upon the throne of Yah. What is the force of Kas? Why does it not say, as usual, Kasa? And the divine name also is divided into half. Yah is only half of the tetragamaton. The Holy One swears that his name will not be perfect, nor his throne perfect, until the name of Amalek be entirely blotted out. Okay. To, to recap what he's saying here, and it's actually just quoting, like most things in Rashi on the Torah, he's just quoting a Talmudic text. Um, but there's both the word that is the word that is used for throne and God's name is not whole, meaning there's part of it missing. And he specifically focuses on Amalek, but the message of it being that there is something missing in terms of both the name of God and the throne of God, it's not whole. And that's where this comes in. So these are a combination of a few texts, but specifically thinking of God's name. Um, People love to ask me if I believe in God. I get that question a lot. My response usually, like a good Jew, where you respond with, where you respond with a question, is that you have to define to me first what you mean by believe and what you mean by God. Both of these words have been used, abused, and misused in many different ways. I, I had a question once at a, I did an event in Rockland County, and there was a person who was Hasidic and was trying to like be like have like a gotcha question. He's like, do you believe in God? And I, I responded to him, what do you mean by that? And they were like, no, this is a yes or no question. Do you believe in God, yes or no? My response to him was, if your God is yes or no, then I don't believe in that. Um, well, there's something in, in one of, this is one of my favorite, I would say, philosophers or, or, or uh, uh, in modern kind of contemporary Judaism, Rabbi Art Green, he is the dean and founder of Hebrew College Rabbinical School. I've had a lot of conversations about him about this in person, but this is from his book, Radical Judaism. Now, the, the name for God in Hebrew, which the, the historical philosopher in me wants to jump in and explain how Yahweh was actually a Canaanite God, and there's actually statues of that that were found in Israel, but we're not going to talk about that right now. But the name that is ultimately became the ideal name of God, the yud Hey vav Hey, the one that we usually pronounce as Adonai, or Hashem. In some ways, specifically if you flip around the, the alphabet a bit, but a lot of linguists actually believe that that's where the name King comes from. It means being, existing, Havaya. 
It's a way of relating to the concept of God as the sum total of existence. When people ask me if I believe in God, my, the easiest way to put it without going into a two-hour-long philosophical rant is saying that I relate to the idea of God as a word that we use to relate to everything there is, which is kind of also one of the Hasidic schools of thinking of God. Uh, there's a very known one, that because Chabad follows that, that everything in the world has a spark of God. But one of my favorite ones actually claims that not everything in the world has a spark of God, but rather everything in the world is God, just different shades of it. So we are all God, which ultimately also means that looking on that from a dualistic, like philosophical perspective of God and creation, God and being, that doesn't mean God doesn't exist if God is everything because everything is God. So like God as a separate being doesn't exist. Pardon my rant. We're going to not talk about that too much. Sorry. Point being, there's a way of looking, a very traditional way in Judaism of looking on God as the sum total of all of humanity. And that is the word that we have been using. Being, or Yudai Vafe, underlines and unifies all there is. There is no ultimate duality here. No God and world, no God, world, and self, only one being and its many faces. When I refer to God, I mean the inner force of existence itself. That of which one might say, being, capital B, being is. I refer to it as the one because it is a single unifying substat, whatever that word means, of all that is. Being is one, and each person is God's unique image. Now we're getting, we're getting to the punchline in a second. So let's look on this one. This is part from the Piyut in the Sanatokev. I know that in many Orthodox communities, I know that in many Reform and Renewal communities, I think pretty much everywhere I have ever been to in Rosh Hashanah, this prayer, this poem is a big part of Rosh Hashanah prayers. Even, even many Reform communities that have cut out most traditional prayers, this one usually still makes it in. Let us tell the utter holiness of this day, for it is tremendous and awe-inspiring. And on it, your dominion shall be exalted, your throne established, in loving kindness, and you will sit on the tr that tr throne in truth. If we come together and bring that point punchline that the high holidays at Rosh Hashanah, one of the biggest parts is, is building that throne, making the name of the divine, whatever that is, if you look at it in a very traditional way or in a very almost atheistic way where God is simply a way to refer of the sum total of humanity, it comes to the point that we are all parts of God. It comes to the point that you cannot have a Rosh Hashanah. You cannot have, as Rasha would say, you cannot have a whole God if humanity, if people are not all. In other words, if I translate this to very legitimate LGBTQ people, if LGBTQ people, them being whole, means making God whole. If we're not whole, if humanity is not whole, and humanity is ultimately what God is, which is literally Tzalem the image of God, that means God isn't whole either. So when we talk about is Judaism okay with queer people coming out, the question becomes, is Judaism okay with queer people not coming out? Because then we're not whole. So, if you want to go around this year and say that Rosh Hashanah is all about encouraging and celebrating people to come out, because that's how you make that how you get God sitting on his throne, 
you can say that you met this really weird rabbi who told you that that's what Rosh Hashanah is about. It's pride. It's the holiday of pride. It's about celebrating people being who we are. And I'm not totally crazy, as you can tell from these texts. Well, maybe I am, but not for that. <laughs> I'm gonna... Um, I don't know why I have all these pictures here. Oh, this is also the part where I'm... Uh, uh, also, <clears throat> this is used by... Um, also said part of the Musaf prayers. Um, and also, uh, and, and at least the Hasidic Kimi a lot of songs on these, on this, these words. This day the world is born anew. And all creation awaits your judgment. But the part of like being born anew, we're not going to dive into this more. I just want to pull up some links in case any of you are interested. And then we have a few questions if you... Yeah, that's what I was going to do. Yes. So feel right. free. Um, you can get my book. It's an easy URL to remember. tinyurl.com slash becomeagive. If you go on that, you'll find options to buy in many different places online and in person. Uh, hardcover, Kindle, audiobook if you want. Feel free to stalk me online. I'm very stalkable. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. <laughs> if you like Hasidic food, my Instagram has a lot of them, specifically on Fridays. Uh, I love to cook. We like very greasy, unhealthy Ashkenazi food, but they are delicious. Can't help it. Um, let's take some questions. Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, I just want to say I can sit here for the next like three days and listen to you. Um, this was really, really inspiring. Well, I and four, but I got an hour and a half if you want. <laughs> um, it, it just really. I mean, I have many more questions than I do answers after this. And I think, as as you know, and as you alluded to, it's just like the perfect way to, to enter into this uh, conversation and continued learning because I, it just, it was a beautiful, beautiful presentation and one that, that really opened my eyes to, to much more Torah, quite literally and figuratively about the subject. Um, Tali Link wrote me a question. It says, um, have you found yourself wanting to be a queer pulpit rabbi? And have you ever been asked to lead as a rabbi? Um, I am a bit too much of a rebel. I don't <laughs> think I could ever deal with a board, to be purely... That's fair, yeah. <laughs> honest. Um, I, I, I don't see myself as a pulpit rabbi. Um, I will say I do, I do co-founded something called Sacred Space, where I do work, which is a, an interfaith, multi-faith, faithless space for women and non-binary people. My, fan, my friend who grew up Mormon that I co-created with, she just calls it her feminist church, however you want to look at it, um, where I very much serve in the, in the capacity of a rabbi in an interfaith setting. I have done many, I've led many stuff, whatever style and residence weekend services. I think the part where I have been a rabbi more than most has been at protests and, and actions, which uh, to me, that is a very big part of uh, what clergy and what rabbis can do in this world. Um, I don't see myself at the moment ever being a pulpit rabbi. I have tremendous respect for pulpit rabbis, which to me are... I feel like they are CEOs and social workers and therapists and uh, doctors all at once, plus knowing a lot of texts and so on. It's really inspiring. Uh, but personally, I don't see, I, I never say never, like there's a better chance I will end up being a pulpit rabbi than 
an astronaut, so out <laughs> there, and obviously I am a rabbi already, so I'm not saying no to it. Um, when I lost space, I didn't just do. I, I'm not saying astronaut, like whatever. I'm saying like it, it's not, it's not, it's not even what I'm doing my day job at the moment, so to speak. So everything could happen, but not at the moment. As a pulpit rabbi, I will say that it is extremely important to have rabbis in the world who are not pulpit rabbis. Um, so wonderful that, that you have other aspirations. Um, there's actually, this second question is also from Tali. Um, is there anything like a custom or a teaching from the Hasidic community that you wish American Jewry would do or believe or, or take with them? There are many things, to be honest. I sometimes tell people, well, there's two parts, um, two sayings that I love to say that mess with people's minds a lot, which is that I believe in Judaism, I don't believe in God. Um, again, all of these statements we can sit on for, forever. Also, um, I'm not religious, I'm Hasidic. <laughs> which I think Hasidic Judaism at its essence, at its core, when it started. Hasidic Judaism today has as much to do with Hasidic Judaism of the Baal Shem Tov as Christianity has with Judaism. It has some leftover in some texts. It's by far not the same. Um, I think there's a lot. Um, I think the way Hasidic Jews do holidays and, and Shabbat and so on, where like literally the entire day becomes this really, in my opinion, fun focus on it, which could be really amazing and exciting. Um, many of the teachings, like I wish there were more rabbis who would be more open to what, staying at a pulpit and talking about God as simply something that, whatever, whichever way you relate to it, but, but the sum total of existence opposed to the boogeyman in the sky, which exists. But a lot of rabbis talk, it, talk about it that way. But I personally, I think not enough. Obviously, no one has to listen to me. But um, I wish that was a bit more uh, there. Um, I love the focus on food, but I think American Jews have taken enough of that. Um, like we had, like growing up, every Shabbat had like a five course meal that was very specific and different, there were different dishes for different holidays and everything was, everything was like religious almost, um, uh, which I think has, has a beautiful part to it. Like not the part where everything becomes religion and if you don't do it, you're evil, but like the part of really <laughs> leaning in to materialistic things. That's something that could be a beautiful experience. That's a great answer. Um, Deb, Deb, do you want to ask her a question? Bye. Remember you, Deb. I'm so sorry. It took me a minute. That's okay. <laughs> so many of the people on this call know me and know my child, Yoni, because Yoni has spoken at Beth Am. Yoni um, was first came out as gay when he was 12 and then came out as non-binary when they were uh, 17. 17. So I, I'm wondering if you see this because I'm curious um, that people are have an easier time accepting trans, uh, trans people than people who identify as non-binary. 100%. It's, Why do you think so? Can you... Well, it's sad, but it's like uh, to explain why. It's more like that people have... It's the same reason why it took longer for society to accept trans people as opposed to gay people. Like from a religious perspective, for example. In Judaism specifically, there's almost nothing against trans people, even by strict interpretations of texts. Yet... And there's more about gay people. Yet there are, more, there are many religious people who are easier with gay people than we are with trans people. And the reason for that is that it challenges the status quo more. I think very similar is when it comes to non-binary people. 
it, there, there's a certain, like people have a certain sense of male and female. With trans people, all people need to get around and accept or am I can you celebrate is the fact that people go from one to the other. It's a lot harder for people to understand the concept of, oh, I'm not male or female. Because unfortunately, society that we live in isn't raising people that way. And I think it's partially the reason why younger people are so much easier with it is because more and more younger people are being raised with that, that this is normal. Think about it this way. Um, in Hasidic Judaism, they talk a lot about, they use a lot, of the, a lot of the metaphor of color to explain something that can be explained. So someone who is blind or colorblind, you can't explain to them what red is. You can't. Red is very reddish. Like, there's no ways to explain a color for someone who has never seen it. I think when it comes to, well, it used to be the entire LGBT community, but as society is getting used to it more, we do see it, we become less colorblind. You do see these colors. And when it comes to non-binary, that is a color that many people have no context for. They have never seen that color. When... If we want to talk about transgender, they were like, oh, you were blue, you were pink, which are stereotypes that don't make any sense, but whatever. But like, it's easier for people to understand that, that and thankfully I think that is changing. And, and other thing that I, that is something that people are expected to know is, I always tell people, I don't expect you to understand what trans people are going through or to even understand the experience. Frankly, if someone who is not trans is telling me, oh, well, I know exactly what you're going through, I would be very hesitant. I don't think you do. I don't understand certain things. I don't understand asexual people. I don't understand many other things. I don't have to. I think what people are expected is to not just tolerate, in my opinion, celebrate, but to understand that you don't have to understand everything to support someone. Um, this is a comment. <clears throat> Natalie, For the, it was a deeply moving presentation, and thank you. Um, I'm just going going through my chat here. I don't see any other questions. Okay. Does anybody have? Does anybody want to raise their hand and ask a question? Oh, Barbara. Yeah, I I asked you in the box, but I maybe oh. didn't hear it. I don't know. What does Q mean? The queer. I really don't understand queer. Because when I was a kid, every gay person was queer. So now it means something different. And I've been given an ex explanation by a gay rabbi, but I still don't understand it. So what's your definition, please? Okay, two things. It used to be a negative term. Uh, very similar, and though we have very much re-embraced it um, and made it into something positive. Similar to the only people that I know that take sh being called shiksa as a compliment are people who grew up ultra-Orthodox and have left, specifically women. And Myself and a lot of my friends, if we call chicks, we're like, oh, thank you. Point being, because in the Hasidic circles, and, and for people who speak Hasidic Yiddish, ironically, chicks is actually not used to talk about non-Jewish women. It's actually usually used to talk about Jewish women, usually people from the community who dress in a certain way. It's almost synonymous with whore. So we're like, yes, cool. We're like re-embracing it. Um... Queer is a very similar term in that way. It used to be something negative, and then people were like, yes, we're different than the stereotype, and we're happy with that. Today, queer, for many people, it's an umbrella term. So there are many people who would be, say, gay and queer, many people who are trans and queer. Like I, 
it's usually used as an umbrella for people who fit under the LGBT. And for many people, Q is an umbrella term. Some people who do not want to identify with any of these specific LGBT, like, for example, someone who might have been raised as a woman and didn't necessarily transition to anything else, but is into certain people that most people would call women, but they don't want to put these labels on them, could just be like, I'm queer. And that would fit under that umbrella. And depending, it's usually a personal choice what people want to use. Um, okay, Barbara, is it really quick? Yeah, well, kind of. Um, in your definition, as far as believing in God, I would just like to comment that when I was in college, my rabbi, we um, a drash on, on um, Yom Kippur, saying, you don't have to believe in God, you have to have faith in God. I thought I should throw that at you. He said, scientists, which I am a physician, cannot understand what they can't see. So if you have faith that there's something out there that's bigger than you are, that's good. I just thought I'd throw that out to... Personally, I don't like the word faith either, but that's a whole other conversation. Okay. <laughs> we'll have her back, and she can talk all about faith and belief. Um, I just want to say thank you one more time. I, I was watching, I actually chatted this to you privately, but I was watching the video of you at Roman Moo, um, and I was really struck that we were here in a class on our way to the high holidays and that your emergence into that community as Rabbi Ingber was talking to you um, was like the Hinani prayer where the cantor or the person reciting Hinani speaks from the back or really sings from the back and moves forward. And I thought it was just a beautiful metaphor and a beautiful way for us to conclude to say that you have really shown us what it means to be courageous enough to say Hinani um, and to say that I am here and to say that this is who I am and to teach other people that that is exactly what we should all be able to do, no matter gender or sex or age or or look or anything or race or uh, ethnicity, but that we should just be able to say Hinani and this is who I am. So thank you so, so, so much for being here. Really just a pleasure to have you. And Again, I, I hope this is just the beginning of many more conversations. So thank you. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.